Inside the Adventure, episode number 66, with Troy Hartman. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. Today, we get to hear the story of Troy Hartman, an incredible aeronautical enthusiast as a professional aerial stuntman, skydiver, inventor, X Games gold medalist for sky surfing, a sport he practically pioneered in the United States, and an accomplished television host for several shows, most notably the MTV series Senseless Acts of Video. If you've ever watched a crazy James Bond or Batman stunt pull some kind of ridiculous feat in Hollywood, there's a good chance that Troy actually did that in real life. In fact, if you take out your phone right now and search for Troy Hartman on YouTube, you'll probably not return to this podcast until spending at least an hour binge-watching some of his stunts, such as plane-to-plane skydiving, base-jumping off a moving semi-truck, trapped in a free-falling car, wakeboarding behind a helicopter, and most famously, skydiving with a flaming parachute. Most recently, Troy has been spending his time building a jet-powered personal backpack that he's used on skis and in solo flight, which he's currently building into an exciting new form of aerial recreation, as he follows a strong passion to change the possibilities of aviation forever, a passion born early on from his father's love of flight. Uh, Well, I grew up in a mountain town, uh, Mammoth uh, Mountain, which is a ski resort. Uh, so right there, I think uh, there's just a natural um, sort of thrown into the world of adventure. Uh, I grew up there, was born, uh, you know, born and raised uh, and obviously became a skier at a very young age and was uh, skiing, you know, almost every day of my life in the winters. Uh, and my dad was a pilot. So, you know, not a not a commercial pilot, but he was a you know private pilot. And I would say that just <laughs> having a uh, an airplane and skiing in my life, uh, there's just no way I couldn't, uh, end up being somewhat adventurous. Um, and the kind of friends I had growing up, uh, we all pushed each other, uh, like, like most kids do, you know, you push each other, but for us, it was pushing each other up on the mountain or in the summer riding our dirt bikes. Uh, I was just surrounded by that sort of thing. Um, but the crazy thing about it is I was not I was the least adventurous of all of my friends because I have a technical mind and I'm just, uh, I, I was, I was always fascinated by computers and, uh, engineering and I built model airplanes and, um, I spent a lot of time studying and doing well in school. Uh, so, uh, I actually found myself very often pulling away from the adventure, whereas, you know, uh, my buddies were, uh, they, uh, many of them became extreme skiers, um, professional skiers, um, and motocrossers and skateboarders that, you know, they all went that direction early on. Whereas I decided, uh, to go to college. Um, that was, you know, I really wanted to go and, uh, get a degree and, um, and become an engineer and a pilot. What did you, what did you study in college? Uh, what kind of engineering were you really passionate about when you ended up, um, kind of taking that step? You know, my, uh, path, uh, for, you know, school, uh, was, was so clear cut. 
I knew I wanted to be a pilot. I just, I just knew it. Um, and that's obviously because of my dad. And, uh, and I, I, you know, when it comes to studying something, you know, you, no one really, it's hard to always know when you go into college, a lot of people don't really know what they want to study. But for me, it was obvious. Well, what, what, what has to do with airplanes? Well, aeronautical engineering. And then the choice of schools was very simple for me too. Where do I go if I want to be a pilot and the, the, the funnest kind of flying you can do, the best kind of pilots? Uh, I went for the Air Force Academy, you know, and that it was all a very, very well laid out, very obvious path for me at that time. And uh, I fortunately had, uh, you know, good enough grades and, um, you know, I got accepted to the Air Force Academy. And so that's where I went to school studying uh, aeronautical engineering and became a pilot early on. Um, Did you get a chance you know, the to interest- uh, kind of get into aviation through your dad and actually get your pilot's license before school or more of just kind of informal flying around in the plane with him? Uh, kind of how did that actual career in aviation get started? My dad uh, offered for me to get my pilot's license. Uh, you know, when I turned 15, I think is when you can uh, start working on your pilot's license. Uh, the interesting thing is, um, I don't know, you know, there was a, there was a shift with me and I was very academic and very, you know, follow, follow the path, you know, all through high school. And then my senior year, um, right, you know, I got accepted to the academy, but then there was this, this shift in me. I don't know what it was, uh, where I started to get a little reckless. I started to get a little bit, started really pushing the boundaries of everything I was doing. Maybe it was confidence. I'm sure it was confidence. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't pursue, I didn't take up his offer to, to, to get my pilot's license. I think because I started to get distracted by, uh, some of these other things with, with my buddies. Um, I think that's really what it came down to. Uh, so it was interesting, right? As I was going into the academy, uh, my, you know, my senior year in high school, making that transition, I started to move a little bit away from the academics and that focus probably because I had already been accepted and now it was like, okay, what's the next challenge for me? And it was, uh, you know, to, to, to fast forward, I, I, I didn't make it, I made it through four years at the Academy. I made it to the the final stretch and then I got myself thrown out, uh, because of the way I was the entire time I was there. I was, uh, I was, I was a problem for them. I mean, I had great grades and, uh, I actually qualified for a pilot slot because I was top of my class. I really did well academically, but I was just, um, I was constantly getting in trouble, constantly pushing the limits there. Uh, I mean, more than anybody in, in the, in the time I was there, I was sort of known for it. Um, yeah. And I, and I, I got my ass thrown out for it. <laughs> so from from what I heard, I don't want to ruin it, but it, it's uh, it seems like it's a pretty uh, exciting story. If you don't mind, what what happened? Well, I uh, again, I started flying. Uh, I started flying at a really young age. Um, you know, I didn't. I with my dad, I you know didn't start learning how to fly. I was just with him all the time. But then at the academy, I had the opportunity to uh, you know become a pilot, and and very quickly. Uh, at the academy, if you decide to take that route uh, of of pilot training as a sophomore, you go from being a student pilot to, if you want to, become an instructor pilot, a preliminary instructor pilot for the cadets that come in below you. And I just went for it. I mean, I wanted to fly as much as possible. I mean, that that was it. And when I when I finally started the program there, I said, look, if I'm going to be a fighter pilot, uh, which is you know which which is what most of us wanted to do. Um, 
then I've got to, I've got to fly, fly, fly. I've just got to get more time and get more experience than anyone else. And I did, I mean, I, I took it to an extreme. Uh, I, I, my buddies, you know, were like, wow, you're, you know, you could take the weekend off. You could, um, you know, you could, you don't have to fly as much as you are, but I just, I just couldn't get enough of it. Uh, and what happened was I, you know, there were certain, you know, you only had so much you could do as far as the, um, maneuvers and the the types of things you could do while you were flying there. You know, I, I had already learned all this, you know, I'd learned everything I, um, there was to learn in the curriculum and I had become a pretty good instructor and I was like, well, what do I do next? What, you know, in the next two years I'm here at the Academy, what do I, uh, learn in my flying? What other maneuvers or whatever, what other disciplines? And, um, I'd learned aerobatics and, you know, I'd, so I, next thing for me was to, you know, okay, well, let's just go get as radical with the airplane and break as many rules as possible. And probably the, the biggest one you see in any, um, you know, uh, rebel pilot movie such as Top Gun, which was, you know, at the time was the, the big thing, uh, was flying low, <laughs> buzz the tower. Um, and I took it to buzzing everything, buzzing cars, buzzing ice skaters, buzzing people on chairlifts. You know, this was out in Colorado. So I love to go fly to the mountains and just go, you know, rocketing down the, the chairlift 50 this feet. Is, uh, this is in a, in a jet too, right? No, this no, this jet. was not in a jet. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and that's just it. They fortunately for the air force, uh, it caught up with me before I ever was put into the really big equipment, which, you know, I, this is what the, this is what the guys do though. The, the fighter pilots. I, when I, when I was growing up in mammoth, we had a few, uh, F-16s go flying right underneath the tram, the gondola up there. So, you know, that's oh, wow. what they do. And I, so I was in the spirit of, of a fighter pilot. I was doing all that stuff, but Essentially, I um, was out buzzing uh, farmland and cattle and horses, and uh, I hit something. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to um, get into the details, but I did hit something that day that I was buzzing the farmlands. Um, and how, uh, how high are you above the ground? Uh, just for anyone who doesn't know necessarily uh, what buzzing is, uh, three or four feet. Two, wow. three feet. I mean, if you're over, if you're over a flat piece of road, you could touch it. Um, so yeah, you're, you're right there. You're right on the deck. I mean, a couple of feet. So, uh, you, you misjudge something, you're going to hit it. And, uh, it's not like I was in a jet, but still you're doing 150, 160 miles an hour, um, in one of their training planes. So I took the landing gear off. It was one of those, you know, it had fixed landing gear. Uh, the wheels were down the whole time and, and I, I took one completely off the airplane, uh, and then had to come back, uh, and land on two wheels and totaled the airplane. Luckily, uh, my buddy and I walked away. Um, and, uh, that was it. I mean, I had some other issues over the years I had been in trouble for, but they were relatively minor. But I think this was one where they said, okay, this guy, uh, yeah, the, the, the you know, I, I got thrown out, but I did have a couple of uh, officers approach me in the two or three months before I actually left, where it was kind of that grace period of knowing I was leaving and I was still stuck there. But um, a couple of officers said, man, you know, that was pretty phenomenal what you did with that airplane. And honestly, if this had happened back in the 70s, you'd, you'd move right into pilot training and and they'd love you for it. He goes, but this is just a different time. You know, they don't, they frown on this stuff. Obviously you have the chops to, to be a fighter pilot, but, 
uh, it's a different time. They were scaling back. The military, this was in the, in the 90s, and they were really scaling back at that time. Uh, so that was it. Um, I was out at that point. And it, it, it was a devastating time for me. Um, very uh, embarrassing. And my parents were, you know, they were so proud of me being at the Air Force Academy. And suddenly it was a, it was a huge fall from grace. It, it really was. It was, a, it was a really tough time uh, when that happened. I'd imagine that that's definitely a pretty difficult thing to go through, but I've definitely noticed a theme um, between your story and, and several others that we've had on the show that sometimes the most innovative, creative people are oftentimes the ones that uh, sometimes get themselves into a little bit of trouble, kind of like this. Um, so I, I know that if that hadn't happened, you probably wouldn't have gone on to do all the amazing things that that you've done today that you're really well known for. But what was that next step that you ended up taking uh from that that moment of that really difficult situation um, on to what would end up being what you got into now that I won't give away, but I'll let you explain there. It, it was a very defining uh, point for me. And, you know, I could have probably gone about it a couple of ways. Uh, one would be, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pick myself back up and I'm going to um, follow the, the straight line now and and get back on track. It won't be with the military, but you know, I still want to be a pilot. So, um, you know, I, I could have looked at it that way. And I looked, I, I, you know, obviously did a lot of soul searching and a lot of thinking, uh, after I left. And then of course the other way to go is, well, okay, I'm at the, I'm at the, the bottom now <laughs> for me. Um, this is the bottom and, uh, how, how much worse can it get? Why not just really push it? Why not just whatever who cares and let's just let's just really go for it now and that was kind of the that was the direction I decided to go and I thought well what's what else can I do you know aviation that's that's considered reckless or just pushing the limits and the boundaries and it made sense to to pursue skydiving it was it was pretty obvious to me at the time I said you know what um I'm gonna give that a try and I had some buddies at the academy uh you know, it's interesting because at the time I was, I was frightened when I was, uh, at the Academy, uh, we had, they, again, you had the two tracks you could take, uh, flying or, uh, skydiving as far as you had to learn the preliminary, uh, you know, just do a three week course in, in each, uh, or, or only of one, I should say, and then you could stick with it or not, but you had to do one or the other. And I had chosen flying and had no desire to skydive. I, it really frightened me. The whole, the whole concept uh, freaked me out. But at the airfield, we, we would ride the bus with the guys um, that were skydivers. And I got to know a few of them, and they'd say, you should do it. And I'd say, no way, man, that's nuts. Well, I think enough of hearing that and enough of being ex exposed to it, um, I said, you know what, that's it. I'm going to go for it. And I, I probably never would have done it if uh, I hadn't been in that place of recklessness where it was like, well, whatever. I mean, honestly, it's well, if I die, I die. I mean, I've been in that place a few times um, in my life where it's like, oh, well, who cares? I mean, I'm, I'm going to go for it. And I really did think I could die and I wasn't really concerned about it. I just said, I'm going to do this. And, um, and I, I fell in love with it. I just, I really thought the sport was the most amazing thing. I was sort of surprised that I was, uh, that I hadn't done it uh, earlier. And, uh, at the time when I, uh, was doing my first skydives, you know, in the first, you know, 10 or so, the first couple of months of training, uh, there was this guy in Europe that had just come up with this new thing called sky surfing. Um, 
So this was 92 or 93 or something like that. And there was a videotape, a VHS tape that was floating around the drop zone, uh, the little, you know, podunk Cessna, you know, drop zone that I was jumping at. And they put this thing on the TV. Look at this guy. And it was to uh, uh, in excess suicide blonde. It was uh, this is planet Reebok. This guy, Patrick de Gaillardon for France. And he's out there doing all this stuff with a sky surfboard with a board on his feet. And I was just blown away. It was like the wheels were turning. The second I saw that, I said, wait a minute, this is it. Because I was at this place in my life where I was searching. What is it? I can't be a fighter pilot now. I want to do something awesome up in the sky. I want, I mean, I know that aviation is my thing, but I want to, I want to push the boundaries. I want to be doing something that's just out there. And this was it. It was obvious. It was like, I'm seeing this because this is what I am supposed to do. And to me, it was obvious. And of course, the other skydivers, when I said, I'm going to do that, they said, they laughed and said, you're crazy. You know, here's a guy with 10 jumps saying, I'm going to do that. Okay. We've heard this before, (laughs) you know, and, but I, I made it happen, you know, at the, at the time you couldn't, you know, this was in the nineties and no one had seen anybody do this in the United States yet. And, um, it was uh, black death. That was, you know, they said that, 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 no, that's not something people do. It's just this one guy, he's going to kill himself. You know, that's doing this over in France. Well, I went and built my own board. I mean, there was, there were no boards. There was nothing commercial available. I just watched it different from, from a snowboard. Oh yeah. It's entirely different from a snowboard. It's, uh, you know, I had to, I got a copy of the video and I would just watch it frame by frame by frame. Oh my God. You know, hundreds of times I was studying what he was doing, but in the beginning I was, I was studying the board. I would try to get a good freeze frame and, you know, a freeze frame of a VHS is pretty, pretty bad, you know, and I'm just trying to figure out what it is about his bindings and the board and all this stuff because the, the bindings were, they were special. They had to be strong enough to really hold your feet to the board, um, not nice and rigid, but you had to be able to cut the board away. It had to be a very simple, um, you know, uh, handle that you had somewhere on your body that ran down a cable to the board and would immediately cut your feet away from the bindings if something went wrong. Um, which I found, you know, yeah, I think it goes wrong really fast with a board on your feet. Um, but the way I, the way I went about it, the way I, you know, said, I'm going to do this because it wouldn't, it wasn't allowed, uh, anywhere. And so I built this board and I found some bindings. I, I found somebody in Florida, this girl who I knew had done some, I think she had actually built a pair of bindings for Patrick. And I said, Hey, can, can you build me a pair of bindings? And okay. She was sort of reluctant, but, uh, you know, so she sent me this set of bindings and I just made the board out of wood and (laughs) took this thing up to a drop zone. Uh, it's called Lodi. It's a drop zone uh, in, in, you know, the town of Lodi that the song is about, I believe. Um, and there's a there's a skydiving center up there that is known for just being very loose. Um, anything goes. Uh, it's it, And people go there to, to kind of get away from all the regulation that there is, you know, in the sport. Not a lot, so but there uh, is regulation. It's kind of the, the test case uh, place for all these crazy ideas that, that people want to try but aren't necessarily allowed other places. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and it wasn't so much, you know, this kind of stuff, uh, testing new things, uh, back then in the nineties, the trying new things like this was really, um, uh, I know that in the seventies there was a lot of it. 
people trying all kinds of crazy stuff, obviously, and they were doing it at all the different skydiving centers. But in the 90s, things had it, it wasn't like that anymore. Um, any kind of testing of new things was really seemed like it was more military or uh, stuff like that. It, it was that it was just it was just more of a loose atmosphere. It wasn't necessarily this is the place people were trying new things. It was more like this is the place people could smoke pot and go skydive and drink out in, in broad daylight and and cuss and and you know just get loose and jump naked and it was more of just a real loose kind of radical sort of thing not so much you know this is where the r&d happens kind of thing but i knew this was the place where if, if i was going to get away with it and not have somebody uh freak out on me this was the place to do it so you know i went up there and i didn't tell anybody i mean i didn't I didn't tell anybody what I was doing and it was a DC three. That was the big, uh, that was the jump plane up there, which, you know, a DC three, um, it's, it's a tough plane to, you know, when you jump out of it the first time, there's just a huge prop blast and it's a small door and, uh, it's not ideal for this sort of thing, but it was all they were running. And I, you know, went to the airplane. I, you know, I put myself on the list on the jump list and then I went out to the airplane 20 minutes before, anybody else. And I went to the very front of the plane and I shoved the board underneath the seat at the front of the plane. And, uh, so no one would know it was there. And then I was, I was at the airplane when everybody showed up. So I was the first one on and, you know, I was scared. I mean, yeah, I was, I was scared and I was doing something I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing. I was trying to hide it from everybody. And, you know, the climb altitude, you know, I was, oh boy, it was, it was, it was a, it was a big deal for me. And when it was time to, to go and everybody was, uh, making their way, getting their, you know, standing up and getting their gear adjusted and making their way to the door, that's when I pulled the board out. And, you know, everybody's kind of in their own head at that point when it's time to exit, they're not really thinking about what anybody else is doing, but there was one other jumper that looked at me and he said, is that a board? And I, yeah, you know, with wide eyes, I'm thinking, oh God, is this guy going to bust me? And he, he just took look looked at it for one second, and then he looked at me. and He said, "Dude, you're nuts," and that was the end of it. He didn't say anything else to me. <laughs> just, That's awesome. And 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 everybody filed down the the plane, and I was the last one out. Put the board on my feet. At that point, the pilot I saw the pilot look over his shoulder at me, and he saw what I was doing. And I think you know, he, he, I don't know what he was thinking or saying, because but he he was watching me, and uh, I shuffled my way down the the plane and. And I jumped out and I was, you know, out of control, flipping and spinning and just exactly what I expected to happen. Um, and it was probably just beginner's luck, but I, I got control of the board. I actually got on top of it and locked into a stable standing position, which is what you want. And I, I just held it. I said, that's it. I'm, I'm safe at this moment. I'm just going to hold on to this. I'm not going to do anything else. And then I, when it was time to pull my parachute, got the parachute out, survived it. And of course I was on top of the world, even though I, I felt like it was all just luck. I didn't know if I could recreate that, but I did survive that first jump. And, and then I landed and, uh, and that was when I thought, well, this is when I'm going to get thrown out. This is when I'm going to be done here. And the owner of the drop zone who everybody knows a guy named Bill Doss, he's a real, oof, he's, he's a tough one. He walked up to me and he, picked up the board. He looked it over a couple of times and handed it to me and walked away. And that was, that was it. And I said, Whoa, I guess this is what I'm doing now. <laughs> I guess this is what I, I'm a sky surfer <laughs> at Lodi. This is it. And you know what? I, I, he let, I, that's it. I just kept on jumping. And, 
And uh, now I was skysurfing and that was my thing. So it was, uh, wow, what a time. What a time that was. Wow. And, and there, other than seeing that video of the other person in Europe skysurfing, had you had the chance to talk to anyone else uh, that you knew that had also tried it? Or was this really just going off of, um, you know, just off your gut of, of what you thought it would be like? Oh, there was nobody else, do, no one to talk to. Nope. It was, yep. I, I basically had to just figure it out on my own. And it was watching that video over and over and over again. Um, no, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it because uh, everybody was a naysayer back then. I didn't even want to bring it up. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't even want, I didn't want the news spreading from the drop zone up at Lodi back to the drop zone near where I was saying, Hey, this guy's up here jumping aboard and, you know, watch out. I, I just, I just wanted to get as many jumps in as I could low key without anybody knowing about it to a point where I felt comfortable. Um, and then I, I went out and had someone get a video of me, you know, after maybe 20 or 30 jumps, I had somebody get a video of me. And then that was when it was like official. I could show this video. Hey, I'm, I'm kind of in control. I'm up there doing this. Before, uh, uh, before you made that video, was it hard to to keep it a secret? I imagine, especially with the owner walking out and seeing the board, obviously he didn't get mad at you. But did did word start to spread at that point? Uh, word definitely spread at that particular location. Um, there were, you know, there were quite a few cameramen. That's, hey, I want to come out and video you uh, right away. Uh, at the, it was not. Yeah, it was. It was definitely not hidden at that point. Um, I just didn't want it to get back to my home drop zone where, uh, essentially I was, I wanted to eventually, uh, keep doing it there. Um, I just wanted to stay low key and I drive up to, and it, you know, driving to that drop zone was a, I think it was a two and a half hour, three hour drive each way. And I was doing that every weekend. I was still, I had continued college. I was back in school and I was making the drive every weekend and, um, yeah. And you know, it, in hindsight, it was the way to go. I mean, I couldn't have done it. Uh, at any other spot, I had to do it there, and um, and they, the, you know, uh, yeah. was the plan to to do enough jumps at this more liberal drop zone to get enough experience under your belt to be able to bring it back and make it more mainstream at at your own drop zone, so they would accept it more. That was exactly the plan. Yeah, I wanted to basically quietly uh, uh, get to a point where I could show a video. And, you know, not kill myself or not kill someone else, not cut the, the board away, uh, you know, out of control and free fall and then have to go land on a car or on a person or something. There were so many things that could go wrong that I just wanted to quietly get through that that you know phase until I had a video or two where I could suddenly say, hey, check it out. You know, I'm a sky surfer. This is what I'm doing, even though I you know only would have 20 or 30 jumps by that time, yeah. which is which is not a lot. But it was enough that I became the expert. Suddenly here I was just, you know, surviving. That was it. But I, I was now an expert because no one else was doing this. So what um, happened, you know, at that moment when, when you were the, the expert on this new sport that you practically, you know, invented, um, and, and grew as soon as you had that video and you had that validity, what was the acceptance and the feedback that you got after that? Uh, for the most part, it was positive. Um, you know, it, it, it I wasn't, I, I was, it was, it was, I should say it was mixed. You know, some people, the skydiving is, you know, it's obviously a lot of people who are, uh, forward thinking and you know, those types, they got it. They said, wow, this guy's going for it. And you know, I was young and 
uh, smart guy and anybody that knew me, uh, they knew, oh, he, you know, he got through his training really quick and he was, you know, I was a good skydiver. I basically had was, you know, progressed pretty quickly through the basic skydiving training. So the ones who knew me said, yeah, you know, um, why not? But of course, uh, there were plenty of naysayers too. This guy's, he doesn't even have a hundred skydives and he's doing this and he's going to die. I mean, I, I know there were plenty of people thinking, oh, this guy's going to, we're going to hear about him. And they were just waiting for it to happen. Um, so I would say it was, I would say it was mixed, but what was important to me was that the owner of the drop zone, um, was, was good with it. And fortunately he was a very forward thinking guy, uh, old school guy who'd been doing this, you know, since, you know, the sixties back when, back when people really were doing super crazy stuff. And, uh, he, he was, he was cool with it. He said, yeah, you know, it's great. I think it's, and that was what was important was that he was letting me on his airplane. <laughs> that was the only person that mattered. <laughs> I, I'd imagine access to the airplane is, is definitely the most, the most important thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, for, that's the key. <laughs> exactly. For, for anyone who maybe doesn't skydive and doesn't quite understand how it works, uh, what's what's the difference between the just the way that you move and control your descent with this new method with the board versus skydiving in general, and and why is it so much more risky um, and potentially uncontrollable, like you were talking about with that first jump? Yeah, you know, it's it's because you have this gigantic surface area, like a rudder or a aileron or something that it can it can deflect the air so much. And it, 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 so the way the analogy that I give people that I think is the easiest way for them to uh, visualize it is imagine if you, um, you know, it's like if you stood out the sunroof of your car, uh, doing 60, 70, 80, a hundred, you know, it's, it's going to feel pretty, it's a lot of wind blast on you. And, but the mass of your body, um, you know, in that wind stream, it's, it's, you know, it's strong, but it's manageable. It's your whole body, your whole mass. Now imagine doing a hundred and, you know, 120 miles per hour, same thing. And just, you know, just putting your hand out, you know, just your arm and your hand, it's going to take a little bit of effort. It's going to be, you know, it's going to take quite a bit of effort to just, to just hold your hand steady since it's a, you know, it's a, it's not as much, it's a pretty big surface area, but you don't have a lot of mass behind it. Now imagine, taking a book and turning it flat and putting it out in that wind stream with just your arm doing 120 miles an hour. I mean, it's, it's going to get violent. You're, you're not going to probably be able to control it. So that's the same thing with the board. You take a big surface like that. That's not part of your body. It's not, you know, it's not, uh, an engineered part of your body, so to speak, where everything works together and is in tune. It's, it's foreign and it's big and it's flat and it's not aerodynamic. Um, Anything you do, any little movement on that thing, it's 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 going to try to flip or spin or it. I mean, and it it'll it'll spin you out. Um, there were uh, in the, in the following years, as people started to get into the sky surfing, and they'd see the videos, and this was in the '90s, late '90s. There were quite a few deaths from uh, uh, guys losing control of the board. It would just suddenly you'd spin up so fast and so violently that it would it would knock you out. Um, but it was, uh, it was different from, uh, tunnel vision, you know, when you get knocked out in a, you know, say, a, you know, in a fighter jet, you know, the guys who get in the back seat and they get knocked out, uh, by pulling too many G's. The difference here is, uh, it's not a positive G where the blood's being pulled away from your head. 
it's a negative G because what happens is you get into the spin on your back and you get spinning so violently and so fast and you have, you, 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 there's nothing you can do. All you can do is cut away. It's, it's cut the board away. But if you don't do that fast enough, the blood now is flowing to your extremities, which your, is your head and your feet. And it'll, it'll, it, it's a red out, I think they call it because it's the blood going to your head. Um, the closest I've ever had it, it, you know, I cut the board away. Fortunately, I got the board cut away, but it blew the, uh, the, the blood vessels out in my, both of my eyes just completely, my eyes were just solid blood red. Like you, you know, and when I landed, I didn't know, I didn't feel it. But when I took my sunglasses off, when I landed, oh my, you know, it, everybody went into a panic. They thought I was bleeding from my eyes and then, you know, Oh my God, this guy's going to die. But I, you know, I guess it's, it's something that happens to people. You know, you can sneeze and you can blow a blood vessel in your eye and your whole eye gets filled with blood. And that's what had happened. It had filled my eyes with blood because it just, it was too much pressure. Um, so yeah, that killed, a, that killed a few guys. Uh, and the key to it was you got to get that board cut away. As soon as things turn bad, uh, and some of the thing, one, one thing that happened a, a couple of times were that the handles, you know, what, where you had the handle to cut the board away, they, some guys were putting them on their knees. They'd have a Velcro handle on their knee and then it would run from a cable from their knee. Well, you get into that spin and, and within half a second, when it accelerates, you can no longer reach your knee that the force is too strong. You cannot, you, your arm, you don't have the strength to counter the G forces to get your hand down far enough to your knee. And so, uh, fortunately I never, I, I always had my handle at my waist and you could always get your hand to your waist. You could always manage to get your hands into your waist, get a good grip on that handle, pull it. And then the whole thing ends. The second you get that board off your feet, it's over. The, the spin is over and, and you're, you know, you're back in control. Um, uh, but it's scary. It, it is. It, and that was the biggest fear. I, I had nightmares about it. That was my biggest fear was losing control of that board and going into the death spin. Um, and it was a constant threat. In all my years doing it, you never knew when it would happen to you. After having a situation like that, uh, I'm sure that's a very scary thing to deal with. H- how did you get the confidence and the courage to get back on the board and, and try it again, knowing that that could happen in that very next jump? Uh, the only way I was able to do it, honestly, uh, was because I was young. <laughs> I was young. I was in my mid twenties and I didn't have a family. I didn't have, you know, I had nothing to lose in, 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 you know, in my world. Uh, that sort of stuff now freaks me out. But back then, um, I had, I had a ton of close calls. I had all kinds of stuff happen to me. I would, one time I was spinning upside down, you know, doing one of these high spin helicopters and my pilot shoot, you know, the, the small parachute that you throw out into the wind stream to deploy your main parachute. Uh, the spin was so fast that the pilot chute, um, came out of the pouch and it got thrown out, you know, and, and so that my, my, uh, parachute deployed while I was upside down spinning in a helicopter. Um, and it just flipped me right side back up. And, you know, you see me go shooting up the video, man, you know, I just disappear straight up spinning in a spinning mess. And it was just luck of the draw that, the pilot chute didn't sneak out and go between my legs. Uh, that would have killed me instantly. Or, you know, I just, luckily it all opened up clean. I was in, you know, a hundred line twists, but you know, that's manageable. You can get out of line twists. Um, 
so, you know, I've had, I've had all kinds of crazy stuff happen. Um, you know, sky surfing and other skydiving stuff, obviously over the years. And, uh, it never affected me too much, which, um, again, I just think it was because all that stuff was in my twenties, no family. Um, and I, I was gung ho and, and I would just get right back to it. and uh, didn't usually look back. I'm sure in that situation, especially at that age, the excitement of creating something so exciting, new and innovative, oftentimes vastly outweighs, outweighs the, the risks and the, um, the things that could potentially happen. Um, so at, at that time in your life, when, when you'd created this new sport, what was on your mind? What were you thinking? What was next with what you wanted to do in establishing this new way to experience aviation? Well, you know, I, I knew I was at the front of something. I was at the, the forefront of something. And it was it was something that people were very interested in. It, it, you know, no one ever uh, got bored by the conversation. And it, it was I, so, you know, there was no future in it as far as opportunity at the time when I started. There was nothing like, oh, I could start a business doing this. There was no financial gain that I could see. As a matter of fact, it was it was a ton of money spent is what it was. I was going more and more into debt, but I just, I just knew, I said, this is, uh, I mean, this is just so awesome. It, it, it's, I'm one of only a few people in the world doing it and it's, it's so challenging and it's so cutting edge. There's gotta be something here. There's just gotta be something to it. I'm going to keep doing this, even though I was, you know, the biggest fear for me was I was going to just run, you know, I was gonna end up so far in debt that, I was never going to recover, uh, and, and, you know, and which is what I was doing. Um, my parents thought I was, I mean, I think it was really tough for my parents cause here I was, you know, I just got thrown out of the air force Academy and now I'm doing this and they don't understand why. And of course my mom was a wreck over it. My dad thought, you know, what is he doing? It was, it was a weird time, but I, it drove me just, it drove me more. I didn't know where I was going with it, but I knew I was going to keep on going. And, you know, sure enough, um, about a year and a half into it, uh, I saw a USA Today article. I'll never forget coming across that in the newsstand. And there was some little blurb in there that said ESPN to uh, introduce extreme games, summer 1995. Whoa, okay, what's this? So I, you know, looked into it. And they were, you know, the extreme games, which now is the X games. But the first year it was the extreme games, extreme games, which uh, everybody knows about now. But it was this test thing. It was this new thing. And I, I looked and sure enough, sky surfing was in there. They had they had some pretty weird ones. They had bungee jumping and a couple of but, you know, they had skateboarding and, you know, all the main stuff they have now. And they had sky surfing in there. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and of course, I mailed that. You know, there's no internet, there's no scanning, taking a picture. I mailed that to my dad. It was like validation. Like, look, there is a reason I'm doing this. I'm going to be on ESPN, <laughs> you know? Um, and it was amazing. It was like the timing, the, you know, what is the saying about success? It's where opportunity and preparation collide. I mean, you couldn't write this more perfectly. I was prepared and suddenly here's this article 1995 extreme games. And, uh, of course I was there, you know, I was only one of 10 in the world doing it and I was, and, and I was there. So, uh, you can say the rest is history kind of, because at that point I was suddenly, I was doing something legitimate. I was, 
you know, sponsored and I was, you know, competing and I was on TV and I was up moving up in the rankings and it was like, oh, okay, what he's doing is, yeah, it's responsible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is cool. It was just suddenly changed just like that overnight. Yeah. What was the feedback from, from your parents, um, having that, that first way to validate what you're doing, given the, things that ESPN you know, thought about it and, and having it be included as one of the activities, did, did that change the way that others perceived what you're doing and, and maybe your relationship with your parents at that time as well? It did change. Uh, not quite as, as much as I thought it would. Uh, but there was, you know, I could tell my dad's he's, he's a tough, you know, he's, he's a tough one. He's, uh, he's not super emotional. you know, I, a, a lot of how I am is, you know, the way he is, he's not one to show a lot of emotion or maybe say exactly what he thinks. I think he was pretty proud of the whole thing. I think he thought it was pretty cool, but he would never really say that to me. Um, he'd always make little comments like, well, you know, enjoy it. It seems like you're having fun, but remember, you know, this is, this is, you know, he'd make some comment about how, and it's true. I think he saw that it wasn't something I could probably make a living at. It was just a kind of a cool thing. Of course, at the time I thought I could, I thought, Oh, I'm going to get rich doing this. You know, I'm going to be, it's going to be in the Olympics, whatever, you know, your eyes are wide open with this kind of stuff when you're doing it thinking, you know, there's no end to the future, but he, you know, so, and my mom, same thing. I think she, she would just, well, she would always just show her concern for my safety you know, and she'd always ask, well, how do I know what, you know, what can't something go wrong? And, and I always try to rationalize and say, no, you know, this is the thing, how the, I try to explain to her the parachute and, but it, you know, it was, she wasn't going to ever get it. She just knew that what I was doing was dangerous and there were people dying. Um, that was, that was the thing, you know, uh, as I progressed, um, over the years, there were more and more people that were dying, um, around me. And that didn't make it any easier for them or me. Um, and, uh, and I know my mom was in a weird place with it. My dad was too. I, I, I think they were, I th- yeah, they were proud of what I was doing. And of course, when I was on TV, I think it was really neat for them. But I also think, you know, the majority of the time they were just, they were really concerned they were going to get that phone call. And being a parent now, man, I actually have to give them a ton of credit for uh, sort of staying out of it and just letting me do my thing. I didn't, you know, I didn't obviously understand what it's like to be a parent, having a kid do this sort of stuff. And, uh, oh man, I couldn't imagine. Couldn't even imagine. I'm sure they were very proud of you with what, uh, what you're able to accomplish with the X games with it. Um, so what was the story of, of how you ended up entering the X games and then ultimately, um, being able to win, win the gold medal? You know, yeah, it was just a, it was just a ton of work. Uh, it was my job. I was at the drop zone five, six days a week. Um, you know, we do eight to 10 jumps a day. Uh, you know, it was a full on, you know, you're training and you have a, you know, there's a structure to it and it's, it's a, it's a serious thing. Um, we would plan out our training camps. I would do, you know, I was trying to do a thousand jumps a year, a, a thousand to 1200 a year, uh, and then uh, half of those I would do with my camera partner. Um, we would we had a sort of a schedule where I would go work on certain maneuvers. Um, f- you know, I, I was only given a certain amount of time. We'd look at we'd look at the upcoming competitions, 
And we'd say, okay, you know, well, we want to make sure we fix this and this that we didn't have figured out uh, at the last competition, but we also want to try to work on new stuff. And it was a balance. It was a balancing act. I wanted to come up with new moves and, and my partner, Vic, he wanted to perfect what we didn't have, you know, down. And, and it was, it was a little bit of a struggle for us. And then he wanted to perfect some of his moves because the camera, the cameraman is 50% of the equation. That's what's so interesting about the sport. Um, it's a lot of work for the camera flyer to stay with the sky surfer. The, the fall rate is constantly changing more than any other discipline. When that board is flat, I'm falling slow. When I go into a maneuver and the board turns vertical and cuts into the wind, suddenly I pick up 30 miles an hour speed and it's, and it's moving, sliding around the sky. I mean, you're, you're moving all over the sky. You're drifting and tracking and the cameraman's job is to make it look like you are falling straight down with absolutely no movement. And it is unbelievable the amount of effort it takes um, and expertise it takes for these cameramen to get that good. So um, it was a team thing. He had to get, you know, I had to lock in my moves. We'd have a, you know, we'd have a, like a 10 or 15 day window or something, 20 day window prior to a competition where we'd be locked in on moves. We'd, no more. You know, I wanted to perfect some new move. Nope, nope, nope. We, we agreed to this. We're locked in now. Whatever we have perfected, now we train as a team so that he could get the timing down, get the transitions down because he had to know my routine and know how to make the speed transition. So it was a seamless, you know, very seam, seamless jump. So I could no longer introduce anything new in that period. And so it was a, yeah, it was, you know, it was just a, a balancing act. And, um, and as we got over the years, we, spent a ton of time together. It was like a marriage. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many sports are, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty, but it was, it, it was like a marriage between the two of us. Um, we had plenty of disagreements and, you know, there was a lot of emotion in, in the whole process of, uh, trying to, you know, make our way up in the ranks, but you know, we did it. 1997, uh, was the year that we won and, um, it was a ton of work to get there, but what an amazing day, you know, uh, Talk about validation. It was really cool. What kind of opportunities when you when you finally were able to to bring sky surfing to such a big audience through an avenue like the X Games and and win the gold? Where did that kind of take that and that initial excitement and kind of innovative spirit for the sport from there? What were you able to do to to further that initial drive and passion that you had started with on day one? Well, you know, at, at the time I thought, um, it's all uphill from here. You know, we're, we're going to get endorsements and we're going to travel the world and we're going to be doing TV shows. And, you know, of course I'm thinking it's all going to happen. Uh, in hindsight, I'm very, very lucky. The opportunities that did come, um, the X games, uh, actually got rid of sky surfing a couple of years after we won. Um, my partner died. Uh, he, Vic got into an accident, uh, six months, um, after we had won, he was in a skydiving accident. It was a freak thing that should not have happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just tragic and stupid and, and, and horrible. Uh, so he passed away and, um, I, well, that was it for me. I was not sky surfing was over for me. I, I, I said, that's it. I'm not going to do this with anybody else. No way. I mean, not only did I not want to put in the time and energy to try to uh, get back in sync with somebody, but I didn't, I was, I was gutted. 
I mean, I, I did not, I, that was it. I just didn't want to, um, it's like getting remarried, <laughs> you know, and it's not, it's not going to happen. Um, so it, actually things kind of slowed down, uh, for me. I, I essentially quit and didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. It was an, another weird transition. My parents were obviously my mom was a wreck. Um, when Vic died, um, that was, you know, that hit home. That was, that was a, that was tough for her, really tough for her. And was he pretty close with your entire family, I'm sure. We, well, at that time, my, you know, my parents, uh, it was interesting. My parents didn't actually get too involved. It was, a, it was interesting. I always wonder, they didn't want to come to any of my competitions. They didn't want to be, uh, they didn't, they were not involved with, with my, uh, sky surfing. They loved to watch it after it already happened on TV. Nothing was ever live. Uh, really. I mean, X games was still a 10 minute delay or something. Um, so they wanted to watch it after it happened and hear about it after it happened. They, they, they did not want to know about something that was coming up. They didn't want to come to the skydiving center at, during the competitions. Um, a lot of my other friends, you know, that had parents that lived in California or even across the country would show up. My parents didn't want to, they didn't, you know, they live in California. They didn't, they were in California, uh, when the X games was in California and Oceanside when I won, they didn't come, they didn't want to be there. Um, I think, you know, I think I know why they, they were scared of it. They didn't, <clears throat> they didn't want to be there when something bad happened. Um, so they didn't, they didn't get close to Vic because of that. Uh, you know, we certainly didn't travel together up to my hometown, which is, you know, six hours from, from here. So Vic didn't get to know my parents. I think he met them one time. So he wasn't really close with them. Um, but it was just the fact that, you know, my mom knew obviously how close we were. And uh, although there had been some people dying, I mean, all the, all the sky surfing greats, uh, had died up to that point. Patrick, the French guy who I had, um, you know, who inspired me, he, he died, uh, in that time period. Uh, Rob Harris, who was, he was the best sky surfer in the world and he was in the first extreme games. Um, he, he passed away, uh, all skydiving accidents. So, you know, those freaked my parents out. But when Vic died, it was just too close to home. It was like, well, if, you know, if, if Vic dies, then it's almost like I'm next. And I get that, you know, I was, I was starting to question it too. Everybody, all my, I, mean, I have so many photos of a group of three, four, five of us. Um, and in the picture, I'm the only one still alive. Uh, my wife and I both, she's a skydiver. She's been in the sport a long time. And we both have those, <clears throat> those pictures, um, where everybody in the photo was gone except for us. It's creepy. Um, so yeah, I started, I start. I, I was kind of walking away from the sport at that time. I didn't know what to do. I was lost. I was very proud of what I had accomplished. And at that point I didn't see any reason to, to pursue it any further. Um, but some opportunities came to me. They just came to me. I wasn't searching them out. And the, the big one was the Pepsi commercial. Um, it was, yeah, it was a Pepsi commercial for the Super Bowl. And, uh, they were looking for the top sky surfer in the world. It could have been any year, you know, that they had been searching for a sky surfer for this big commercial. And it just happened to be the year that I was, that I was on top and they wanted the top guy. Um, and that commercial, you know, it won the Super Bowl, you know, became the number one commercial in the Super Bowl. The, the goose, 
uh, you know, me and the goose out there sky surfing together. And most people still remember it, but it has been so many years now. A lot of people, they have to look it up to remember it. But I think most everybody that sees it says, oh, my God, that's right. I remember that commercial. Uh, and that was that. Oh, that's what really opened the doors for me. The the X Games uh, isn't what really opened the doors. It was it was just I was in the right place at the right time being the world champion when the Pepsi commercial came along. That Pepsi commercial is what opened the doors. Um, that's where I had a few different production companies and um, approach me and say, hey, you know, we've got some ideas. And uh, that's where, yeah, I started to um, get some opportunities after that. It sounds like if it wasn't for that Pepsi commercial, then you, you would have been pretty content with walking away and, and saying, you know, it was an awesome run, an awesome career, but I, but I think I'm done. How did that commercial and what came from it change your mindset towards that? Well, what happened, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I had actually, um, after the X Games in that time period, uh, you know, after Vic died and everything kind of just slowed down and nothing was happening, um, I started to pursue the commercial pilot path again. I thought, you know what? I've done this. I don't know what else I'm going to do with this skydiving. Uh, I think I'm done. And I, I started flying again. I'd actually, I'd actually hung up flying for like five years. I was ashamed of myself. I was totally uncurrent. You know, I used to fly all the time and was really on my game. I, I hadn't flown an airplane for five years or something. And I decided to get back into it. I bought an airplane, a little airplane, um, and I started flying again, building hours, and I started applying to uh, the airlines, the, the regional airlines, Southwest. Um, no, no, sorry, SkyWest was the, the California regional airline that kind of was the one everybody applied to out here. And it's just, it's just interesting. I, in that time period, I did the, the Pepsi commercial. Um, and then uh, I had a bunch of applications, pilot applications out on my desk. I got this phone call while I was filling out one of them. I think it was the Sky West application. I got this phone call from somebody at MTV. And he said, hey, can you uh, come up to MTV tomorrow or whatever at this time? We want to talk to you about something. And of course, I flipped over the application because I didn't have any, I didn't have another piece of paper. And I still have it somewhere. But I wrote on the back of that Sky West application, you know, the MTV address and time and contact name and all that good stuff. Well, there you go. You know, I, that ended up being the next big thing. I did the, this big show for MTV, uh, senseless acts of video. It's what, you know, all the, the videos you've probably seen online are, are clips from the show. Uh, and it became a, just a, a hit show, uh, for MTV. And uh, I was the host and the stunt man. And, um, and suddenly I was, you know, at the time you could say I was, I was famous. I was this guy doing this MTV stuff and it was, it was a wild ride wild, wild ride that, um, holy moly, I, that talk about being lucky to have survived, um, two and a half years of just craziness. Uh, but yeah, it was another weird branch in the road where I still have that sky West application somewhere with the MTV, uh, interview time details written on the back. Um, and, uh, that was where I, I full throttle, uh, went into the TV production, um, you know, t you know, production world. And, and I became a, you know, a good stunt man, experienced stunt man, producer, stunt coordinator. I learned the business, uh, 
and uh, did that show, which was amazing, and then went on to to do a bunch of other stuff. And and uh, I think the days of going after the airline job are pretty much behind me now. <laughs> it's too late now. Did you ever end up actually putting in any of those airline applications, or was nope, nope, kind of right it never. At the right yeah, I was right at the right time. I know I would have been, I probably would have been gotten a job and I would have gone that direction. I would have been very, I would have been very happy with it, but, uh, so, yeah, I got pulled aside and ended up going somewhere else and, uh, and, and yeah, what a ride. Works, uh, works yeah. Like that sometimes that's, that's incredible. Yeah. So done, much of it is. Yep. Oh, it really is. But you've, you've done so many, uh, incredible first ever stunts um, through senseless active vi- acts of video on MTV. What were some of those stunts that you guys pulled off, and and how did you make that happen? Yeah, you know when when the when the show first came about, it was uh, one guy, Brad Coleman. He was uh, a relatively new producer, and he said, "Yeah, you know we we uh, it, it was supposed to be." more jackass it was the idea was uh this was prior to johnny knoxville coming on the scene and he said you know we want to we want to throw like an outhouse out of an airplane you know we want to do all this just ludicrous stuff and they said what kind of stuff can you do and of course oh yeah you know that i can but then then as my laundry list of ideas came back of like it was more you know i was coming up with these ideas you know i want to jump from one plane to another i want to and it became more, it wasn't supposed to be a stunt show. It was supposed to be this just crazy, you know, you know, jackass type thing. But it and the producers looked at everything I said, hey, we could do this, we could do that. And they said, you know what? And obviously they had to go through a lot of uh, executive decisions and the insurance and all, you know, there were a lot of questions about whether we could even do make a show like that. Today, I don't think you could get a show like this done. I just don't think they w- it, w- it would fly. But at that time, MTV gave it the green light, and they, they took my list of, of things, my wish list of stunts that I wanted to do. And they said, let's do it. And, uh, and it was an immediate success. The first, the first few shows were such, I mean, it was a hit right out the gate. And uh, my list quickly, we, we quickly went through my list. And then it was... Then when I ran out, ran out of ideas, the producers were coming up with all kinds of stuff. I mean, they, they really came up with some some stunts I never would have thought of, uh, like burning the parachute, you know, lighting my parachute on fire. I, that wasn't my idea. <laughs> Yet it was just probably most iconic thing we ever did. And it was not my idea. I, they just said, could you do that? And of course, I was most of the time I said, I, yeah, I think so. I don't know. How do I, I have no idea? And I had to defer to a lot of experts. I had a I had a few guys at my side that I would say to them, I, I really don't know. I'm I, I'm you know, and I'd say, what do you think? Can I do this? And um, you know, a couple of right hand guys I had, Todd and Carl, these two guys. I would always go to them. Can I do this? They'd say, yes, you can do this. Trust me, troll it. Because I I was beginning to you know, um, after a few close calls, and I was it was such a strange whirlwind of. I mean, we were doing two stunts a week and I did like 45 different stunts. I, I started to get into a weird space where I was having sleep issues and I was getting kind of short with people. I was getting, I was nervous about things. I started doubting myself. Um, I, I started to get weird. It was because I was doing too much too fast and it was such an emotional roller coaster that I, um, yeah, towards the end I was just, Say, I, they'd say, what about this? I'd say, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I just don't know. I, I think so, but you have to tell me if I can do it. And, you know, they would, they would always say, no, you can do this. You can do this. But it, it, it got a little weird to the point where, um, I started to feel a little 
bit of a tug of war with the producers. You know, they needed the show to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And I started getting a little bit more concerned. And why can't we, why does it have to be this? Why can't I do this? And then we kind of shoot it in a way that, it, no, 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 we can't do that. It's got to be, you know, you got to do two backflips off the building. You can't, and it's like, oh man, it, it really, it stressed me out. And, and after, you know, three seasons and 40 plus stunts, um, I finally just, I finally had to go to the executive producer, Brad. I had to just set a meeting with him, came into his office. He, he said, so what's up? I said, dude, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I just, I can't do it. And he, he laughed. He, he smiled and he, he got up, he pulled out a, a bottle of tequila, put, put out a couple of shot glasses. He said, we've been wondering when you were going to say that we've been waiting for you. And he poured a couple shots and he said, congratulations, we're done. He said, you did a great job. And that was the end of the show. That's, that's how it went down. So yeah, I, I did as much as I could do. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a great mindset that, that he had for that. Um, I could easily see them being frustrated or disappointed, but that really shows a lot that, that they really care about you and respect your decision. But I would imagine that, you know, before getting into all those stunts and before the opportunity came for MTV in the first place, just to kind of rewind to what you were saying before it, it sounds like you were very shaken up just by the loss of so many people in the sport and and your very good friend as well. Did it have any kind of toll psychologically on you to to know that? you were not only the first person to ever do these stunts, but each time you did a stunt, it seems like there'd probably be pressure to make the next stunt even bigger and even crazier. Um, how did, how did you deal with that psychologically? Of course, until that day when you said, I, I think, I think we're done. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was just sucking it up. Um, I, you know, I think I did better than, than a lot of other guys would have done guys, gals that are, you know, would have been in that position. Um, I, I really was, I was losing a lot of sleep and, and I was, um, I was just sucking it up. I was kind of just, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to go back in. I'm going to give it my best. I'm not really going to show my, my cards that, that I'm not digging this anymore. And, you know, the cameras would start rolling and I, I'd, I'd smile and, you know, I'd, Hey, here we go again. And, you know, I looked enthusiastic and I, you know, put on the face, but as soon as cameras weren't rolling and no one was watching, I was kind of, I was back in the trailer kind of just like, Oh man, when's this day going to be done? And I just want to get through this stunt. And, um, yeah, the pressure, it, it got to me. It was, there was no doubt I was, um, living in fear and I was starting to dislike the whole thing. And, uh, and, and again, like Brad said, when I came in and said that, he said, you know, we, we were wondering, I think they expected me to, to, to tap out like a long time prior to that. I think they were wondering how I was doing it. I think there wasn't just, we weren't communicating with each other. He, you know, he never said, Hey, okay. You know, whenever you're done with this, just, you know, they'd never approached me with that. They just said, let him figure it out. And of course I thought, well, there's pressure. Maybe, I don't know how long this show is supposed to go. Am I supposed to go 10 seasons? I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't know what they expected of me. They didn't know where I was at. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, fortunately I didn't kill myself or get really hurt because I was, I was in a weird place that I, anybody, any expert, any psychological expert, you know, sports psychologist would have said, whoa, 
you shouldn't have been doing that at that time because I wasn't a hundred percent. Um, it was just a, yeah, it was weird <laughs> and I'm lucky I, I made it through. So, um, yeah, it was nuts. So when, when you made that decision to end the show and, and step away and you know, move on from, from your work with MTV, I know you've always been extremely passionate about everything that you do in the aviation space. And it sounds like after a certain time, kind of that, that passion wasn't really there anymore with the show. How did you restart that, re-jump that, that sense of innovation that you had started with? Um, and, and what did you end up getting into next? You know, it's it, sort of like, uh, sort of like after the X games, I walked away from the MTV show and I was a little bit, well, I needed a break. That was the first thing I needed to, I mean, I, you know, leaving the, the X games was one thing I was, I was still kind of motivated to, you know, uh, pursue whatever it was, whatever opportunities. But after the, the MTV show, I felt like I needed to like, I don't know, I, I needed to decompress. I didn't want to have anything to do with, with any of it. Um, and you know, I, I left and what did I do? Jeez. I, um, I kind of just said, well, I've got some money in the bank. Uh, I'm not going to worry about it. And I hung out. I, um, I think I started learning, I, you know, I started learning how to design websites and did some other things. I, uh, wasn't pursuing any more of the TV work. I, I did go on some auditions. I got some, uh, I did do some other little shows and stuff that came from time to time, but they were just sporadic. Uh, definitely wasn't, um, you know, making a full living from any of it. Uh, and when money became kind of an issue again, uh, I got into real estate. It was kind of the easy thing to do when out here in California when you're not sure what else to do. Um, and it was kind of a, I was definitely not sure where I was headed. It was a uh, very, uh, yeah, very uncertain time. I, I knew I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, but I didn't, I, I needed to, you know, obviously make a living and, um, and I got out, I got out of LA. Uh, I found that while I was in LA, while I was doing the show, living in LA was awesome. You know, it, you know, you're on, especially when you're the star of some show, you know, it's like you get to go, you get invited to all these cool events and you, you know, you're VIP and, it's just, but then as soon as you're not, <laughs> it really sucks. Um, and I really felt this fall from grace. Uh, I took it well, um, because I'm not the type of person that cares about that stuff, but I had a few buddies, um, that were in the same line of work and boy, I watched them, you know, go up and down. It's like when they had a show or something, life was great. And then when the show ended, they would just go into this dark place and it's like this bipolar thing uh, that I started to see with, uh, with the TV business, how everybody just followed their, <clears throat> their career as far as what, how the rest of their life was. And I, you know, I finally said, I got to get out of here. This is just too weird. Um, it wasn't for me. I didn't belong in LA when I wasn't doing the work. So I moved to San Diego, uh, you know, did some real estate stuff, did some, yeah, just dabbled. And, uh, while I was doing the real estate, I, uh, noticed there was some, um, you know, aerial photography was one of the things that, uh, I, I noticed was a thing. This was prior to drones, but being a pilot and having my own airplane, I thought, well, geez, this is kind of cool. Um, maybe more is, is for beer money, but it was like, I could go up and take photos of properties. I saw what these guys were doing. I can do that. 
So I got into aerial photography. It just made sense. It was um, getting me back up in the air. I felt like it was, I felt good about what I was doing. I felt like this is the kind of thing that I'm, you know, destined to do. It's right up my alley. Um, and, and yeah, I, it didn't happen quick. I didn't suddenly build a huge business from it. Um, but I've been doing that now for 15 years, uh, 15, oh geez, I think longer than that. Um, but I've been, uh, uh, doing the aerial photography, which it's the first four or five years were really slow and I was just doing it more for fun than anything else. But now it's, it, it's what I do full time now. Um, and you know, juggling that I'm always, I've always got my hands kind of in something else, which has been the jet pack for the first, for the last five or six years. Um, but yeah, the, the aerial photography has been my bread and butter. And, um, but again, I've been doing it for 15 years and I don't see it as my, it's not my, you know, my end all it's, I definitely don't see myself doing this forever. And I actually am looking for the next, uh, transition, um, which is, yeah, all this jetpack stuff, which, um, uh, I'm, I'm very into it, (laughs) very, very into it. So after after all the things that you've described already and just your excitement to innovate in the aviation space, I'm sure um, hearing that you were trying to build a jetpack probably wasn't quite as much of a surprise to your friends and family as it, as it might have been otherwise. But how, how did that get started? Where did the idea come from and and what happened with it? Uh, the jetpack thing came around almost exactly how the the sky surfing thing came around. Um, here I was just, you know, doing my aerial photography, real estate stuff. Um, always on the lookout for like, what should I be doing? What, where do I belong? Uh, and that's when Eve Rossi, uh, in 2004, I think he put out a video, um, of, you know, with two engines, um, this wing that he was flying around the Alps. And I mean, it it blew everybody away. Um, it was a very, it wasn't something that everybody saw. I think this was still kind of prior to YouTube. I think it was through just a kind of a shared video thing or whatever. Um, but I saw that and I said, okay, I finally see something now that, that I'm drawn to. It was like finally something that I could see myself doing that. I'm perfect. I now have, I now have a, um, kind of a, a direction to go, something I can pursue. Uh, so I immediately, you know, started looking into, you know, everything you look into when you see something like that, where did he get the jet engines? Who built his wing? Uh, I I found every video I could, I read every interview I could just trying to get some insight, studied photos, um, you know, zooming in and looking at all the different parts of the wing and the jet engines and everything, just, just like I did with the sky surfing. I just studied, 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 tried to figure out, uh, uh, it, it was a much bigger challenge than the sky surfing because, you know, a sky surf board, you just I cut up some wood and put some bindings on it. This was a, you know, this was a whole different animal. Um, I didn't have any contacts. I didn't have any engineer contacts or anybody to uh, help me build it or give me much insight. The engines are expensive. Um, as I'm sure you know, they're I know, seven, eight, ten thousand dollars a piece. And so <clears throat> I just kind of kept an eye on it and just for a couple of years I didn't have any I didn't have the kind of money I needed at the time to just jump in. But I slow I just followed it, followed it, followed it. And eventually I I slowly, you know, I teamed up with a guy and we built a wing 
took us way longer than I ever would have imagined, which was frustrating. I, it, it, but it, you know, it, we did it. Um, and I learned a lot in that process. I learned all this, you know, great fabrication, you know, because I've never been, I, I didn't learn all that stuff growing up. Uh, my dad was, you know, my dad's very handy, but I didn't, uh, you know, learning how to do fiberglass and machining and all this really cool stuff that <clears throat> I had never been exposed to. So I learned that and it was fascinating. Um, we built the wing and then I ran into the problem of who's going to let me jump this. It was the same thing <laughs> as, as Lodi with the skyboard, but this became, this was even, this was even tougher because now we are dealing with the FAA and, uh, you know, I found out that the only way Eve was able to bring his wing over here and, and use it was because, uh, he was, um, had a turbine rating, you know, he was a, he's a, you know, jet, you, you know, flies commercial airlines. So he had a turbine rating and the FAA, you know, they, they made an exception for him, um, to be able to use it, but no one else has been able to, uh, no one else has been able to legally jump something like that out of an airplane here. And when I started to see all those hurdles, um, I, I lost interest. I just, I really lost interest. I sh I should have pursued, I should have kept after it, but I thought, you know what? it took three years or something for me to get the wing done three or four years. And by the time, you know, we got a wing done and had the jet engine, everything was kind of where we were like, okay, what do we do? You know, we're ready to start testing it. Uh, Eve had gone, he had just taken it to another level. I mean, they were the, the stuff he was doing now was just getting more and more advanced. And I thought, man, I got a little discouraged, which is not like me. I'm sort of surprised I didn't pursue it further, but what I decided to do was, okay, I had learned a lot about, you know, fabrication. Uh, I've got these two massive jet engines, um, which uh, they're <clears throat> they were, you know, uh, ninety pound thrust engines. So they're the same as four of what Eve had. I think same as four of what Richard has. Um, but anyway, one hundred and eighty pounds of thrust. And it kind of, you know, I was chomping at the bit to use them. You know, I was like, I spent a lot of money on these things and, and here they are just sitting in a shop, you know, with doing nothing. And I thought, I've got to do something with these things. You know, I said, I just got to do something. I, I, it almost became a little, I almost got a little restless, kind of radical. Like, I don't care what it is. I'm going to put them on a go-kart or I'm going to do something with them. And, I, you know, and then it occurred to me, I just, I just suddenly came up with uh, out of nowhere. I said, why don't I put these on my back and go, go on skis? And there was nothing about it that didn't make perfect sense to me. Why not? And I immediately got on the internet and started searching, you know, jetpack with skis. And I found that nobody had done anything like that before. I thought, well, that's it. No one's done it. It's not like I'm, it's not like I think it's going to change the sport or, you know, it's, I'm going to make a bunch of money off of it or whatever. I just said, nobody's done it. I want to do it. And I think that's the nature of YouTube now. Um, it gives you a purpose for doing something prior to YouTube. It's like, well, why did you do that? No one's going to see it. Now you can kind of just do something for the sake of doing it because just putting it on YouTube and racking up views is considered an accomplishment. Um, and that's what I did. I, I took those two jet engines. I, you know, built my own harness and, you know, spent about six months figuring out the whole thing, getting these engines to start at high altitude. And I mean, all this stuff that, you know, was ended up being more challenging than I expected, but then I, I did it and it was a big accomplishment for me. I mean, of all the things I've done, you know, it was, it's not jumping from one airplane to another or winning a, you know, gold medal or something. But for me, it was like, you know, I did this all on my own. I had a vision. 
and I built this thing myself. I don't have a big background in fabrication and whatnot. And I just went out and did something that no one had done before. Um, not copying what someone else is already doing, but something no one had done. I just went out and did it. And, uh, it, it was cool. It was, it was a great video. And, um, I, I was pretty excited that I was able to do it. And I said, you know what? Okay. I'm, I'm really into all this jet engine stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going after it. I'm going to try something else. And again, uh, I don't know, a year or two later is when I did it with the, uh, with the speed wing, with the glider, um, which was a funny thing because that was just meant to be a goofy fun. It wasn't meant to, it was just meant to be a neat little, you know, production piece, something that was entertaining and fun. Of course, there was a lot of backlash from, you know, that's not a jet pack. You know, of course, suddenly now everybody's coming after me, like, you know, you're saying that's a jet pack. And, but then there's, a, then there's everybody, there's the majority of people saw it and said, whoa, this guy built a jet pack. You know, they didn't understand the, the aerodynamics of it. They didn't realize that, you know, it's, it's not, it's just a sort of a paraglider with a jet engine for a motor. But, um, I was suddenly in this jetpack space. I was suddenly coming up for the search term jetpack. Um, I was suddenly getting calls for, you know, I did a commercial for Honda and I did a few things where I was like, oh, you're the jetpack guy. I was like, well, that's not what I really planned, but suddenly I'm involved with this jetpack movement. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stay here. This is fun. I'm, I'm going to just see where this goes. And of course, um, I've been working on a couple other really cool things that I'm getting really close. You know, stuff takes time. Oh my God, it takes so much longer than you expect. But obviously we've got Richard Browning and we've got, um, David Maiman and we've got, uh, Frankie Zapata. Those are the kind of my three peers, the guys I'm looking at what they're doing and I'm, I'm in that space and I'm, you know, trying to fill in the voids and, and, and figure out what I can bring to the table. That's, that's, that, you know, that brings forth, uh, solutions to their shortcomings. So that's where I am now. That's what I'm doing. And it's, uh, it's not, again, I'm, my day job is aerial photography, but boy, I'm spending a ton of time on this jetpack stuff and I'm really into it. What's the vision for what you want to accomplish with this new jetpack focus? Like you said before, you know, a space that you never really intended to, to get in, but, but now that you're there, what do you want, what do you want it to be in, in five and 10 years? I see it a little bit differently, I think, than uh, these other guys. Um, either that or what they're saying publicly is more just to say it. But I, I don't see us commuting with these things. Um, I really don't. I know the limitations. I know, I mean, at least not in the next 20, 30 years. I, I'm not building something that you're going to commute with. Uh, even the military, I think um, there's a few applications, but I do see the limitations there. Uh, I'm going after it and, and maybe this is more what Richard, maybe Frankie is. I'm going after it more for pure, uh, recreation. Um, I see, I do see a, a space where we can have a competition and air shows and built around this entire thing. Um, and, and I, I just, I'm, I'm going from that angle. I, I know there are plenty of things people will go spend um, you know, good money on that don't have any practical purpose, but they're, they're recreational. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go take out what, you know, this thing over the weekend, paramotor or whatever. Um, and just go have fun. It's, it's, there's really no, I don't see the military using paramotors. I don't see, 
you know, anybody using them to commute, but they're, you know, it's something people are going out and enjoying and having a good time and they're getting really good at it and they're opening up the eyes, uh, opening up everybody's eyes to what can be done and the technology is getting better, lighter, cheaper. Um, so yeah, I, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a little, I'm secretive about what exactly I'm doing because it's, uh, so far it hasn't been done yet, but it is right there in, in it's fits right into what these guys are doing. It's a personal, um, you know, jetpack device and, uh, it is pure turbine. It's not electric. Um, I'm keeping an eye on what's going on with the electric world because I think that's, uh, you know, I don't, I'm curious to see what people are able to accomplish with the electric stuff because I know what the limitations are there and they still seem uh, really big, but I do think there's, we're going to see some cool stuff, uh, from electric jetpacks and such, uh, uh, in the future. There's so much potential for creating this into a brand new sport in a very similar way to, I think what, what happened with when you started, uh, introducing, um, the community to, to skyboarding. Uh, but, but just from kind of your personal standpoint, I'm sure that, um, you know, you and, and your wife, uh, probably felt a little bit better now that you have a family of not quite doing things that are quite as personally risky after stepping away from the show. How did it feel for both you and, and her to get back into something that now has that, uh, kind of added personal risk level in a similar way to skyboarding? You know, this is, uh, the, the jetpack stuff for me is, is, is a, it's a huge, um, it, it, the risk factor is, is well within my threshold, uh, of tolerance. It's not the same. Yeah, definitely. I don't see it anywhere near jumping out of the plane with the board. Um, you can take baby steps. That's what I love about it. Uh, everything's happening from the ground up. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about hovering at a foot or two for months um, probably the biggest risk that I run into and all these guys have dealt with it and it's frightening. And when it happens, it's, it's, it's scary, but the fires, <laughs> I mean, the, the number of uncontrolled fires and, and things just getting out of hand and, and, you know, it's, yeah, like I don't do anything without a big old fire extinguisher next to me. And that's, that's the only thing that keeps me from, you know, just, I don't know if I'm going to get completely burned up in this next thing I do, but having a fire extinguisher or two available, that, that's the biggest fear. Um, but, but as far as the, the flying aspect, um, we're, you know, I'm still, I'm still in the, you know, 10, you know, five, 10 feet and kind of over water and that realm. That's kind of, well, we all are, we're all still there. Um, once it gets to the point where, and, and my intention is to be able to and, and same with these other guys, my intention is to be able to go a lot higher. And that's a lot of what the design is to figure out how to do it safely. And, um, then, yeah, then that's going to be, I may even be bringing on a test pilot for that. It may not be me at that point. Um, getting out away from the water and going up higher. That's when things, yeah, that's when it's going to get real. But right now, uh, it's, other than the fires and stuff that, that factor and none of it's really too, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. You've done so many amazing things throughout all these different aspects of your career that have inspired all of the people watching you in incredible ways to really approach aviation with a new and more innovative mindset through everything you've done at the end of the day. And at the end of your career, what do you hope 
the impact of your work will, will be on those people and on the space as a whole? Uh, the, the coolest thing I did, um, in my time sky surfing was not winning. I I don't think, you know, the winning for me personally was great. Um, a great accomplishment, but what I found most people thought was the neatest thing that a lot of people bring up and, and, and I think we'll, well, maybe not with sky surfing because it's kind of a sport that sort of disappeared. Not many people know about it, but I invented a, a move, um, just brought something so fresh and new that no one had ever thought of. It's called the hen house surprise. It was, it was this move that was so cool and it was discovered partially by accident. And it's the same as any, a lot of great inventions. It's like, it's, it's by accident, but it it becomes this defining thing. You know, it's like Edison and the light bulb or, you know, it's like you, you, you go, yeah, he did that. He invented that. Um, I want to do that with, with the, with the jetpack world. I've you know, nothing I've done yet. Obviously, um, everything I've done so far has just been kind of fun, uh, you know, entertaining video and stuff, but I want to, uh, yeah, I'd love to have it be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Troy Hartman that he brought that to the table and hopefully it's something that's being used, you know, forever. It's something that gets carried into and morphs into something else, but it, it actually goes forward, uh, into the future, which the sky surfing, again, it disappeared. It, it went away. Um, a lot of people don't even know what the sport is if you bring it up now. Um, so the hen house surprise, which was such a great thing, uh, it, that innovation is not going to go anywhere. It's, it's long forgotten. Um, the stunts I did with MTV, you know, that were really neat stunts and I was the first one to do them. A lot of them, Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of becomes buried YouTube video and, um, with a lot of other great things people are doing. So I'm looking for, yeah, that's something in the technology space, this jetpack, uh, aviation technology space that I can make my own. That could be a really solid contribution that I think, uh, hopefully goes well into the future and, and stays memorable. That's, that's my goal right now. If you could go back and and tell that young version of yourself one piece of advice at that moment, right when um, right when you you left uh, you know the Air Force Academy and had that accident, uh, you know what would what would that one piece of advice be to kind of help uh, change the mindset that you had and and kind of um, reassure you of whatever your interests or passions were at the time. Oh boy. I think tell, tell the young Troy that life is a really long race. Um, oh man, there are so many phases and there's so much time. And just because you may not be, uh, where you want to be now, you're not in the fast lane. Now you're stuck way over in the right lane. Uh, and it, and it, and it's just, you know, no fun watching everybody in the fast lane go by you because you're stuck. Well, just remember at some point your lane is going to probably you know, open up, pick up speed and you're going to be going by somebody else and you're going to be in the fast lane. And that just is going to go on and on and on. You know, sometimes you're moving along, sometimes you're not, but it's a long race. And that's something I've learned. Uh, and I wish I would have understood that back then because I, I, I think about that a lot now and I, I keep that in mind and I, and I remember, I, you know, make sure to remind myself of that, um, when things are going slow, which, <laughs> you know, with what I'm doing now, things can go along, uh, very slow. 
thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Troy Hartman, who, by the way, was actually attacked by monkeys on three separate occasions. I have no idea what the full story of that fun fact is, but I can't help but wonder if at least one of those occasions was while skydiving. For Troy, I honestly wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> 